0: Welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia, and this is my co-host, Morgan. Hello. This week, we're going to be talking about Inception by Christopher Nolan, a film that we both find very interesting uh, for, I think, mostly very similar reasons and also have like a lot of personal investment in, which may not seem immediately obvious um, to our general interests. But in my case, it's because I was extremely involved in Inception fandom back in 2010 and 2011 right after this film came out when it had a huge very uh, creative and enthusiastic fan base online and I was reading and writing a very very large volume of fan fiction Yes,
1: I, I was mostly lurking at that time. I did write some fan fiction, but I read a ton of it. And that was actually how I first became aware of Gavia. Um, I used to read your live journals. So <laughs> this is actually our origin story in a roundabout way. I don't think most pop culture critics were aware that this is a thing that was happening. But for like a year, like a solid year. Yeah, like two was years. Like, yeah, it was massive. Just like a huge, huge enormous phenomenon.
0: Yeah, for me, Uh, like Inception is the archetypal example of different types of fandom, I guess, like the gender split in online fandom, because the traditional Christopher Nolan fanboy is someone who's very into film or someone who's very into Batman, and they have a lot of technical discussions on message boards and they're extremely defensive of chris nolan's genius i think it's kind of the somewhat accurate stereotype of someone who would be very interested in deception and also there were a lot of conversations at that point about the technical aspects of the plot of the film and whether the ending was real or not and what parts of the film were in a dream and there was another fandom for Inception, which was fanfiction-type people who did not give a shit about any of that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and nope. just spent so much time analysing the characters and writing heist fanfic, and specifically writing a lot of heist fanfic about um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Tom Hardy's characters, and then the characters as a team, kind of in the same way that Avengers fanfic is really popular as a team with a romance or pairing in the foreground. And that simmered under the surface for like two years.
1: Yes. So we'll be discussing that a little bit, but mostly talking about the film. But I imagine that many people listening to this have some memory of that. Although many of you also don't, which is like terrifying <laughs> to us because it makes us feel old. But we wanted to start by talking a little bit about the historical background of the movie, which was a really interesting case because it was... Nolan's first movie after The Dark Knight came out. And The Dark Knight, obviously, was just this like massive, crazy phenomenon. And so everyone was hugely anticipating this film, and it was an original movie, which sadly does not happen that often in Hollywood, at least from like big blockbuster filmmakers. And it was pretty widely understood that basically Warner Brothers wanted him to do The Dark Knight Rises. And he was like, "I want to do this movie I've been planning since I was 16." And they were like, "Fine, have some money to do it." And so the amount of like speculation about this movie before it came out, and everyone was excited about the casting like two years in advance, all of this stuff. When the trailer dropped, it was like the biggest event on the internet for months, like on and on and on and on. And then when it finally did came out, it was one of the first examples, if not the first, I remember of like the intensity of the sort of hype backlash hype backlash cycle like multiple. Before it had even been released. And I remember some of the reviews, like the reviewers were basically reviewing other reviews of the film before the film had even came out. And then other reviewers were mad about that because obviously film reviews aren't really supposed to be like reviews of other people's reviews, they're
0: supposed to be reviews of the movie. And it was just completely, totally just like nuts. You see, I was completely unaware of this at the time, because this film is what got me into film criticism, I guess. It's what started me blogging about this stuff and eventually writing about it professionally. And at the time, I literally just watched the movie with a friend. And at that point, I was unemployed. So I was like, I guess I'll go home and read fan fiction for a week. (laughs) And lo and behold, a career was born.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I literally had a dream, haha, about like going to see this before it opened and was like stressed out. I mean like it was it was a major event. And then went and saw it at the huge multiplex in Times Square, which I now avoid like the plague. That summer that cinema was shut down because of bed bugs. (laughs) Oh, the summer of bedbugs in New York City like obviously they're always here but it was it was crazy an eventful time and it was like totally raucous the last shot with the like top the entire movie theater like screamed I mean it was it was a big deal (laughs) but uh interestingly sort of compared to Avatar which we discussed a couple weeks ago this is a movie that did make a ton of money although not as much as Avatar but has absolutely lived on in the cultural consciousness in a way that Avatar did not.
0: It still really works. I rewatched this last night and I was met with these dual reactions where half of me was sort of affectionate mockery, especially for the protagonist, you know, DiCaprio's character, Cobb, who is just awful all the way through and often in like a really funny way. And there's a lot of terrible lines in this movie. The dialogue is just frequently nonsense. And... A lot of it doesn't make sense, and a lot of the problems to do with the way that people discuss this is they try to make sense of stuff that will never make sense. But I also was still like, this is incredible. Like, it's a really in many ways like a brilliant movie.
1: I am more mixed on it than you, I think. I remember when I went and saw it, it was unbelievably hyped, which is never great for a film. And I was quite underwhelmed by it. actually. There were things about it I liked, but I did think it was great. and did you I loved- find it
0: entertaining, like as a thriller.
1: Uh, parts of it, yes. One of the major problems about this movie is that there's so much exposition in it. It's all,
0: literally all.
1: (laughs) Yes, to an unbelievable degree. But the first hour is almost exclusively, I mean, I remember I was watching it the other night and my Blu-ray player, like you see how long it's been playing and I was watching it. To like see when the exposition was going to stop, and it was like almost at the hour mark, and I was just like, "This is amazing! Like this just goes on and on forever." And I remember, you see, sort-
0: what I was thinking about last night is halfway through watching the movie, I was just thinking, "This is a lot like a pilot episode, right?" Because I think that's part of the reason why people wrote so much fan fiction because there is a lot of world building going on in this movie, right? And they have to explain a lot of technical stuff, some of which really is not necessary to explain. And that's a lot like a pilot episode where you have to set everything up and then they play with it in the later episodes. And with Inception, you have the main mind heist thing, which is already fascinating as like a heist movie concept. But you also have the concept of limbo, which as far as I can tell, although the general dream heist situation is in different people's minds, limbo is like a shared psychic realm where whenever anyone drops into limbo, it's a mixture of everyone's minds. So anyone who's been in the location known as Limbo before leaves remnants of themselves there. So you've basically invented like a whole other dimension in this movie. And also, when they're in Mombasa, there's that scene where there's people doing casual dream weaving as like an addiction slash hobby, and they just spend four hours a day having 40 hours worth of dreaming in a shared dream, which is like a fascinating sci-fi concept. And also, they say that dreaming was invented as a piece of military technology, but they had to hire architects to do all of the visual designs because normal people can't think of stuff visually like that. So I'm like, there's so much going on here, which isn't necessarily interesting, gives a lot of depth, but then the exposition is just so dense.
1: It needed to be cut down. And a lot of it they did need to explain, but they could have done it more elegantly and it doesn't all need to be in there. And it literally gets to the point where like later in the movie... Poor Ellen Page is still explaining things like two hours in and I was like, this is too much. Like I mean, it's this is excessive. It no, no no.
0: I, I like, mean Ellen Page's role <laughs> in this movie is just enthralling because very <laughs> nearly everything she has to do in this film is ask questions so Cobb can explain how things work. She does have like a practical role, but it's something that could be given to one of the other characters. And then she sort of is the only person who's paying attention to Cobb's emotional state because you have to have a female character crutch for his angst about his wife because you can't have him having an emotional conversation with the person who's actually really his support, which is Arthur, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character.
1: Right, and I was thinking, like, so her role is to be the architect and build these dreams, which is a perfectly, like, reasonable thing to have, to, like, hire someone to do. It's not like that doesn't make sense. Yeah,
0: but they But, they could just have Arthur be doing that.
1: Exactly. There's no reason that he couldn't serve that function. Literally the only reason she exists in this movie is to have Leonardo
0: DiCaprio like pontificate. To right. It's like a bad version of the role that the companion has in Doctor Who because there's a really yeah. fine line you have to tread with that character because you always have to have this dynamic between like a powerful, wise, older man and a younger, naive woman, basically, in Doctor Who. That's almost all of the companions. And when people are good at writing that character, the whole point is that the companion contributes something that the doctor can't do. And in this movie, Ariadne, mostly the only thing that she contributes is kind of encouraging different emotions to come to the surface in Cobb's angst. So, yeah. <laughs> and the rest yeah. of it is just her providing expository questions.
1: Right. And then, like, she insists on going on the mission with them because she's concerned about his instability, rightly so. But then once she's on the mission, she literally has nothing to do because she's already served her function on the heist, which is to build these dreams. So, which, like, fine. But then once she's done that, she's, like, she's done. She's over (laughs) And it also
0: so- you the only way to legitimize Ariadne's decision as a character to just go with Cobb in general is that she has to be like a completely over-the-top thrill seeker, right? Because she's just she's she's like an architecture undergrad, which is a very competitive academic job, especially for women. It's very male-dominated, there's a very high dropout rate, and she's meant to be this really high achieving architect. And this criminal who's on the run for potentially murdering his wife is like, please join our heist gang. And then her mentor is like, you should definitely go with this guy. But even that, you know, it's like a cool, weird origin story for that kind of character. But Cobb is explicitly characterised as being massively unstable all the way through. And not just unstable, but unpleasant to all of the characters. He blows up at Arthur, who's his... I guess like his closest friend. He blows up at Eames, who is the relatively sensible and is like, What the fuck are you doing? He's really kind of physically aggressive. Leonardo DiCaprio uses a lot of his height in that role, so he's sort of towering over Ariadne and stuff when they're yeah. having arguments. And he seems like a really unsafe person to be around, just in the general instinctive sense that if someone is acting like that, you don't go near them. <laughs> like you don't you don't actively seek out a business relationship with someone who is that unstable. There's no way to legitimize that really. It doesn't make sense if she is a person. But she's not a person. No. She's, she's a device. <laughs>
1: she's a plot function. Yeah.
0: And well done for Ellen Page putting her all into it. God knows I respect her. She tries
1: her so hard. And she's not like bad per se, but it's totally I think she
0: does the best like, anyone could have in that role. Like, yeah. she is the best you could do. Oh, but it's like, it's painful. It is just painful. Um And I, I do I, I do think that Cobb's characterization is intentional because Morgan oh, and yeah. I were kind of discussing this a bit earlier, the way that Christopher Nolan and his protagonists are very unheroic and unpleasant, and it's not something that generally gets picked up on as much as it maybe should be, but Cobb is very explicitly just a complete jackass in the movie, and the only time when he's successfully interacting with people is when he's conning them. So when he's yeah. literally conning people like an Ocean's Eleven character, things go smoothly, Like he's able to interact with them and then whenever he's interacting with his co-workers or friends, it's just a complete disaster.
1: Yeah, well, and I think I think we both have a lot of thoughts and opinions about Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker, and I think he has some like major flaws. But I think one of the things that people do look over is that his protagonists tend to be sort of like self-absorbed men, but also awful. And I think people tend to miss that sometimes because he has problems with writing women and often kills them off to give those men pain like there are lots of dead wives in his movies which is a major issue and i think he is perhaps trying to like overcome this like clearly in interstellar he was like making a real effort i mean the the mom is still dead in that but it's not like it's not the focus of the movie at all like he really he really
0: clearly put thought into making his female characters better (laughs) in that film
1: (laughs) um which like kudos to you good job but despite this issue it's not like the men in his movies are all great <laughs> like, yeah and that
0: cool. is I don't think you mean that in a critical sense either no I think like, he, like intentionally makes these characters who are really flawed and terrible but yeah. because they're played by like a handsome protagonist actor people don't necessarily think about it that much
1: yeah and I think he has all these like really intense male fanboys who like think he's amazing and probably don't necessarily pick up on this
0: fact. It reminds so we- me a little bit of the way some people react to Watchmen the comic. Because, yeah. you know, Watchmen is very clearly meant to be negative and critical about, you know, superhero comics and the way vigilante characters act and just American aggressive visions of masculine heroism. And then it's kind of the same thing as Fight Club, where you have people who just take it completely at face value without really digging any deeper. And the author is just like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, this is not the message I was trying to uh, try to transmit here.
1: Right. And with Nolan, like, um, Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar, I think is clearly meant to be quite sympathetic, even though he also, like, abandons his children to go to space. Um, but... Most of his other protagonists are are not great guys, and certainly Cobb in this movie is just, like, hilariously awful. Like, everything he does is terrible. I just kept laughing. It's amazing. Like, he kind of wins in the end, which I guess makes it somewhat more ambiguous. But, I mean, unless it's all in his head, which I think is sort of silly. Um, But he just sucks like he just he can't interact with people he's an asshole when he does interact with people the and i think the most sort of concrete proof that nolan does know that this is true is when he gets them all under and is like oh yeah by the way if if we die in the dream
0: we're gonna go to limbo and go nuts like so yeah. sorry he's like basically risking the lives of a bunch of people purposefully lying to them <laughs> and then all the characters react really reasonably like what the fuck are you doing
1: And obviously making his wife go crazy.
0: And I also, like this is something that really played out a lot in the fanfic fandom reaction to this movie, which was that people people largely ignored Cobb, made fun of him or made him a side character in stories about the cast in general. But he's not... In heist movies, usually the main leader is either impressive or cool and charming. And Cobb isn't impressive or cool or charming, right? Because we see him... Being skilled somewhat as a person-to-person con artist, but we see him in the period of his life after he can use any of his architectural expertise. So basically, everyone else is his support, and he's just kind of being held up by them.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you compare him to like George Clooney in Ocean's Eleven, yeah, right,
0: where he's like,
1: which is a great movie. I mean, highly recommended. Oh, You've also, seen they it. have
0: the same but... costume designer, who is my favorite costume designer: Inception and Ocean's Eleven. We will have to talk about this later because this is my favorite costume movie of all time. Yes.
1: But Clooney in that movie is just a squad motherfucker. And, like, Leonardo DiCaprio in this is just like. He's a dad. Exactly. Exactly. Which is amazing because he's made to look very much like Christopher
0: Nolan. Intentionally, I think. Yeah. I mean, actually, that, that plays into something which I think was kind of reasonably well-known at the time, which is that Nolan structured um, the main cast to resemble different roles in filmmaking. So Cobb is the director, Arthur is the producer, uh, Saito is the funding, he's the studio, you know, Eames, Tom Hardy's character is the actor and so on.
1: Yeah, which is like so cool. There's some article about this, we'll dig it I love it. Yeah, we'll, we'll find
0: up. it, it in the so show notes. Oh, also, Morgan, do you know the thing about their names? no maybe okay i can't remember i'm just gonna share some really great information about this movie <laughs> if you take the first initials of their names it spells out dreams <laughs> and then if you add there's another few characters use of ariadne and someone else where you can add their names together so it's dreams pay because that's what their job is
1: <laughs> beautiful that's beautiful that's Well, as we said, I like Nolan came up with this idea when he was like sixteen, and that's really even if he came up with their names later, which I'm sure is the case. That's totally like still the sixteen year old. Ariadne,
0: the maze girl. That's a classic Harry Potter name right there. Yeah, Dom. His name is literally home. Want to go home?
1: His name is like domicile. (laughs) Oh my god, that's just that's spectacular. (laughs) Oh, Christopher. His wife uh, is Mal. <laughs> evil wife? <laughs> uh, she is very good in this movie, my, my favorite actress. I mean she's good um, in literally everything. Yes. In her in her fancy dresses. <laughs> because of course he's dreaming right. her in like, so fancy good. dresses. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. But we'll get to the clothes later. Um so I know you want to talk about your university and its role
0: <laughs> in this film. Why don't you take it away on that subject? So Christopher Nolan and I both went to University College London and as far as I recall he began seriously thinking about this movie when he was still in university and part of the thing that inspired his interest in uh, lucid dreaming was that he was in student halls where they had breakfast included in the rent. So, you have to get up at a certain (laughs) hour to go and get breakfast. And he taught himself to lucid dream by getting up, having breakfast, and then going back to bed, where you enter (laughs) into that dream state. And he was like, he taught, you know, because you can teach yourself to lucid dream. Like, not everyone can do it, but it's possible. I think that's where he kind of started thinking about this idea. And, you know, it went through like a lot of different phases. I think when he first pitched it to Warner Brothers, it was originally going to be a horror movie, which makes sense considering some of his earlier films. And in this film, there are several sets which are in UCL so when they're at Ariadne's Parisian University that's in UCL um, and that's kind of like one of my old lecture theatres and the library's in there and <laughs> like, <"I'm> there.
1: <laughs> but I think it is it's interesting to think of this as something that a young man came up with right because like you can sort of see the like hallmarks of slightly immature person's ideas that have been preserved until he's old enough to make the movie like one of the things that interests me about him but also about like the studio filmmaking process is that after the dark knight clearly he didn't get edited anymore so this movie really needed editing and obviously no one did it like it's it's quite clear that that was the case and then the same thing with interstellar which has like the stupidest ending of any movie i've ever seen in my life and i actually really like that film i think the i liked so ni- much i was there with my friend and we literally were just like and we'd both really liked the first like 90 of that movie like i almost cried and then we were
0: it's just really like, intense and like yeah. visually, everything is just incredible
1: it's the scene where mcconaughey is watching the videos of his kids and his crying, like I, I was teary and i never cry in anything. And then we got to the end and we're literally just like, what, what
0: is, like, are you kidding me? Like, I, And it's so I- indefensible because this is one of those <laughs> things where the, where the Nolan fanboys come in, right? Because the film throughout its promotion process was very much promoted along the lines of the science aspects and lots of research they put into the wormhole stuff, which is like, sure, fair enough, if you want to prioritize that, that's great, well done. And, like, obviously his skill as a technician, which is also a completely valid way to promote it, because, of course, he's a fucking genius. And then once you actually see the film, you're like, the end of this movie is poltergeists. It's psychic time-traveling poltergeist who are talking to his daughter by, like, moving her watch around from the future, and then... (laughs) going through like a five-dimensional Rubik's cube. It's ludicrous. I'm like, (laughs) that's fine, right? I love, you know, I've watched the movie Stargate like five times, right? I have no problem with that stuff. But the tonal shift between like three quarters of the film being this really intense science fiction drama and then the last part, which is just insane. And then after the film came out, there was no change whatsoever in the way that people spoke about it, right? So all the people who are very, very intensely into Christopher Nolan would just like argue, right? So like yes. if you make fun of, of, of Interstellar, which I do as sometimes. Many people did. No, <laughs> just give it... and it's like you can't Sure, I get that you love him, but like you can't really argue that the end of this film is poltergeist, because it's it's poltergeist. Like <laughs>
1: Yeah. And this gets back to I think one of the crutches that he has, or not crutches isn't quite the right word, but like deficiencies that he has as a filmmaker. Um and the the sort of like teenage young person thing I think comes across like all the bizarre incomprehensible rules of this movie which we'll talk about in a little bit like it just doesn't make any sense but you can totally see a like 19 year old like having a notebook and like writing all of this down there there were a lot of
0: infographics and diagrams after this movie came out
1: Yeah, Um... Um, but like the end of Interstellar right like I think that's a beautiful movie and there are a lot of emotions in that movie. I think it's probably his most personal film, like I think you get a sense um of his feelings about his children in that movie. Interestingly, <clears throat> both of these movies are movies about fathers being away from their children, which is interesting. Um but then you get to the end, and it's this weird, like sci-fi twist. Which, like, up until that point, that movie takes place in the future, but it's not exactly like it technically is science fiction, but it's not very science
0: fiction y Like, it's quite scientific. Um, and then all the well, it's not fantasy ish because the end right, is fantasy, exactly. right? So it transitions from I guess like hard sci-fi drama, or as hard as you're gonna get in like a blockbuster yeah. movie, and then it transitions into this very spiritual conspiracy theory kind of science fiction
1: right but the way that this is manifested is like these weird like interdimensional bookshelves and the visuals of that literally is like bookshelves. It's just this like cubes and it's it's the least imaginative thing I've ever seen and it's it's ludicrous like Matthew McConaughey is like floating around in these like rectangles and inception has a lot of that problem too. Because it's supposedly this movie that takes place in these dream states, and it's all incredibly like concrete. These dream states are like a street and a hotel and like some snow, and the limbo is like a beach and this city that Dom and Mall have created, and it's these like it's really boring towers, and it and really, but it also it's like kind of- fifty years right, like, and they're architects. I was like no like you
0: <laughs> I just I I love I love that. I mean I don't love that in the sense that I think it's um good but I love it in the way that it gives us insight into Christopher Nolan because it's the same way that um Christopher Nolan's Batman movies which I'm sure we'll end up discussing at some point in a later episode um he takes Gotham City which was incredibly well realized in Tim Burton's films and he was basically just like we're going to make it the business district of Chicago. So it's like an incredibly visually Uninteresting. Even if it is beautiful, it's very sterile, right? And this is something that I was discussing about Inception with a friend the other day, actually, because I don't really have a problem with this watching the film. Like, I'm perfectly able to accept it at, at face value as this very clean visual in a heist movie. But there is absolutely no surreality to it. The dreaming aspect is there's no kind of hallucination in there the only things that really correspond with the reality of experiencing a dream are the time dilation and the way that things like the chairs tipping and the water is incorporated, like the music as well as incorporated into the dream. And everything else is, it just makes you think when Christopher Nolan dreams, he is dreaming in like a very well-organized diorama. Right? <laughs> he has like a brain, like a filing cabinet and he's incredibly technically minded. He's very intelligent and he doesn't have a sense of whimsy at all no
1: which i think is why the dark knight is his best movie actually except maybe memento which i haven't seen in a long time but which is like amazing um because there is a level of um abstraction to it right like it's still for a superhero movie quite concrete but because of what the joker is as a character and what heath ledger is doing and like the fact that there's such a sort of like philosophical element to what the movie is there's something abstract about it um which i think helps him a lot and like the structure of the movie is also sort of not traditionally like doesn't have a traditional narrative arc um and then you get to like this movie and it's just so, it just is so funny to me. <laughs> like, and I remember actually watching interstellar too. And a critic that I like made the point of like, he was like, this is when I finally just like accepted Christopher Nolan for who he is. Cause like all the good things and bad things about him. And you're kind of just like, this is how you're limited as a person. And it's fine. Like, it's just, this is just who you are. Like, uh, okay. Like, th- great. <laughs> like Whatever. <laughs> um, Which I think is kind of how I view him. Cause I, I really like his stuff a lot, and he does have limitations. But I feel like at this point, I am just sort of like, okay, like that's I I accept you. Like, yeah, I, think, <laughs> I accept I who very, you are. Like, I had
0: a very similar experience because I've always been like very heavily critical of the way that he portrays female characters, right? Yes. Um, like in most of his films, the female characters are either barely characterized or they're kind of like a dead sexy wife star sort of situation. Yeah. Um, but last year I went to a panel, um, at the BFI where it was specifically about cinematography, kind of filmmaking, like the technical aspects. And it was Christopher Nolan and Tacita Dean, who's a very well-known visual film artist, makes uh, like video art in the UK, and um, a couple of other people, I think it was like a curator at the BFI or something. And they were kind of showing various clips from their own films and other people's films and discussing the technical side. And after like an hour of this, I was like, I really feel like I understand him because it was so abundantly clear that he does not care about character. And in some yeah. interviews, he kind of makes it seem like he cares about character. And I think he probably thinks that he does, especially with Interstellar, where he was making an, a real effort, right? But yeah. it's just not something that matches to him. And that's how he ended up with Inception, which has an ensemble cast, and most of their personality comes exclusively from the performances of the actors, yes. and things like Caution Design.
1: And fortunately, he casts very good actors. One of the things that did impress me upon rewatching was, and obviously, I've read like a gazillion words of fan fiction, so I have like... Lots of opinions about this. But actually, I think that made it more interesting to rewatch because I have all this weird preconceptions of these people that doesn't actually have anything to do with what exists in the movie. And so then when I was watching it, I was like, oh, they actually did quite a good job of making these people feel like people to some degree, insofar as that was possible with them having no written personalities. Yeah, it's
0: it's really interesting to compare this to when we were watching Avatar a couple of weeks ago, because in Avatar they have very poorly characterised characters who are inconsistent and also play very much into stereotypes. And I think the characters in this movie, aside from Mal, who is intentionally written as a femme fatale character, they're not really along stereotype lines, right? They're interesting concepts. They do work, even though they don't have anything even approaching an emotional arc at all.
1: No. Which I think actually doesn't matter.
0: But for a Heist like, movie especially because usually yeah. for a Heist movie you have people who are there for like a skills based thing. So
1: I mean with the exception of Ariadne, who, as we discussed, is yeah. just like put her to the side,
0: just a mess. I think with Inception and Fanfic, the thing that I was really interested to look back on was Arthur and Eames, because tons yeah. of fanfic focused on Arthur Eames slash, right? Fandom does have this habit, I guess. Of writing a lot of fanfic based on nothing pairings. So like people latch yeah. onto like a couple of good-looking white guys in a movie and kind of invent a relationship from whole cloth. So there's a lot of criticism in this in fanfic fandom. Like often it happens in if there's a movie with like a diverse cast, sometimes people will focus more on a couple of white characters in the background. So that happened with the Pacific Rim. There's a lot of fanfiction about the two scientist characters who just kind of bicker in the background and there's a smaller volume about the main characters and um, who like are not white guys mostly. An Inception that's definitely true because people did write a lot about that. But I was re-watching it. I was like, it's true because they do actually have the punchiest dynamic.
1: I was watching it and I was like, it's absolutely no wonder that like everyone sees on this because they're by far the most appealing people in this movie and they have a, like a good dynamic. But like, what's hilarious to me is there's so many people in this movie who are just like idiots. Ariadne is intelligent but also because she's not. She's a young and, and reckless right she's like I'm just gonna follow this crazy person around like that's fine Cobb is just like what the fuck is going on with you like Saito is whatever he's just made of money and like he actually I think that performance is quite good and I like that character too but like his main function is just to be like made of money and that's fine but like oh my god Robert Fisher is the stupidest person I have ever seen in a movie. Like he is such an idiot. He's you know, so like- malleable.
0: He's like the perfect person to do Inception. You don't even need right. to do Inception. You could literally just be like a normal con artist right. and con him super easily. He's kind of dim and very emotionally open.
1: In a way that actually like works. <sighs> it, works.
0: Like, it, it, totally it works. It totally works. Totally it's
1: great. seems like a real person. Killian Murphy is a great actor. He just seems like this guy who, like, had a really rich dad probably shouldn't be in charge of a large business because he's not smart enough to be- And they even do stuff
0: like they make him look quite petite compared to the other characters.
1: Yeah. And, like, he's quite tall in real life, I think. But, like, he just, he just, he's so stupid. (laughs) Meanwhile, Arthur and Eames are, like, geniuses. They're so (laughs) smart. Eames comes up basically with the entire plan of, like, how to do- this which like everyone did talk about online at the time i remember yeah. they're like he's the one who's like no it has to be emotional it has to all will be i'll be about his dad because clearly he's fucked up about it and everyone was like
0: yeah and I'm, then I, i'd love to know to what extent that is something that nolan included intentionally is his relationship with actors where he kind of asks actors for input on their roles <laughs>
1: That would be very funny. I would love to know. But then the best series of sequences from a filmic perspective in this movie is absolutely when Arthur is in the hotel in like the middle dream sequence, or like the mid-level dream sequence, and the gravity goes. When the hotel is like tilting around. And I remember too, like when this came out, everyone was anticipating this sequence.
0: This is so amazing. Like this was the level to which this movie was being talked about. Yeah, they like built the whole set and then had it yeah, turning around with like, him running around it.
1: Watching it this time, I did feel a little bit like detached from it because I kind of was like, this is a really dumb movie, even though like it was enjoyable enough but i was like this is stupid and watching that sequence i felt the same sort of like adrenaline rush again i was like this is amazing like this is so good and i i think it's the best part but there's so there's that which is great and then he has to like kick them out of the dream he has his
0: little diy sequence
1: right it's amazing i was like he figures that out in like three minutes i was like okay clearly this is just because the movie needs this to happen but like They do kind of set him up as, like, a very intelligent, like, competent person. And then he just whips that out. And I was like, what? You're so smart. And then Ames is, meanwhile, like, dealing with this whole thing also brilliantly. And I was like, of course everyone liked you two the best. You're by far the most interesting and competent people. Yeah, they're
0: both really charming. Yeah. There were just so many memes making fun of Cobb. (laughs) Yeah, And there was, like, people used to, like, nickname him Coob, because it was, like, yes. a really common type. so it was, like, when comments was really stupid, he became Coob. Yes. And there was just that meme where his eyes are, like, really closed, and he's kind of squinting at Fisher, and he just looks ludicrous. <laughs>
1: oh. Although I do also remember, like, this is cruel, but I don't care. Um, the, Like, at the time, everyone was just like, oh my god, Leonardo DiCaprio is aging so poorly, like, oh, and, like, if Did people say that? Yes. If only we had known what was to come. Like they should have seen the revenant. Like no, no. I don't feel bad about that because I don't feel bad saying anything about Leonardo DiCaprio, who needs to sort his life out and needs to do a comedy because he's done so many movies where his wife is dead. Perhaps that's why he and
0: Christopher Nolan got
1: along because that is the main consistency. <laughs> like I bet their- they got along
0: because they both parties. hate fun. <laughs> I think
1: Leonardo DiCaprio loves fun, but of a specific type that is not at
0: all Christopher Nolan's scene. Why didn't you just... rename the Pussy Posse? It's like the Wolf something. The wolf pack. The Wolf pack. The wolf right. Pack.
1: I know. I'm amused by the fact, like, Christopher Nolan works with actors repeatedly so much. And, like, obviously not everybody, but he has only worked with Leo once. <laughs> I was like, yes. I'm shocking.
0: Shocking to me. Um, but he keeps yeah. bringing back Tom Hardy.
1: Yeah, which is fascinating because, I mean, I love Tom Hardy, but my impression is not that he is necessarily the easiest person to work with. But he must be very loyal
0: to Mr. Nolan. I if, think he might be of... simultaneously Quite difficult to work with for some people, but also really likable and like emotionally intelligent. Yeah. Whereas Leo is just like extremely intense.
1: Yes. But they're great friends, so it's all it's all a mystery. Who knows? Yeah, he will be in his in Nolan's upcoming World War Two movie Dunkirk, along with Harry Styles. Harry Styles. <laughs> just oh, can't wait. Cannot wait. I actually am like genuinely very, very excited for this movie, even though there have been a million World War II movies, because I love World War II movies, and I really like Christopher Nolan. And also, it would be interesting because he can't, I assume, pull a stupid third act, like weird, dumb twist in a World War II movie, because it's not sci-fi, unless it is.
0: We don't know yet. Harry Styles is playing himself time traveling from the future.
1: <laughs> that would be... That would be amazing.
0: That would be my favorite film of all time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it is exciting that Hardy is doing this because one of the things I found myself thinking about watching this was that was him and Jessica Gordon Levin and like what has happened to their careers since doing this film. This was Tom Hardy's like breakout movie. Because everyone in Hollywood immediately was like, this guy is the next big thing, like great. But he said in some amazing profile that was an Esquire that he did like while shooting the Revenant, that um, he doesn't read screenplays, and I was like, that's interesting, and that's just how he wound up on the Revenant because Leo was like, you have to do this, and he was like, fine, and then he like called up Leo, and Leo was like, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm doing that movie, and Leo, and he was like, you're definitely doing this film, like you are not sending me to like the frozen like like forest without like like no, so that this was explains
0: how- so much.
1: Yes, and then had a miserable time doing The Revenant, so that's interesting. But he said he doesn't read, read scripts, and so I think probably winds up often doing things either because his agent just is like, you have to do this, or because he's, like, buddies with someone, like Leo. I mean, there's
0: a really specific... He likes playing gangster roles, right? Yeah. He's done, like, five too many gangster roles.
1: Yeah, but he is buddies with Gary Oldman, who's been in, like, a number of Gary Oldman movies. He's buddies with Leo, and, like, that like is clearly why he did The Revenant, People have a very high opinion of his talent, which is deserved because he's very, very talented. Although he keeps doing the fucking stupid voices, which he needs to stop doing because they're so bad and distracting. But if you actually look at like the number of good movies he has made since making this movie almost six years ago, it hasn't been that many. And like, obviously, it's very difficult to get. Uh, good scripts in Hollywood. I once worked briefly at a studio and I understand that this is like a struggle, but Tom Hardy is very famous and very talented and very attractive. And I think part of the problem is that he doesn't fucking read
0: scripts. I mean, he was desperate to do a rom-com and then he did one and it wasn't just disastrously bad. It was extremely misogynist.
1: Yeah. And he was like, I'm done with this. And like, he's good in Mad Max. Like, he, I think he's quite good, but like, George Miller is the star of that movie, like Tom Hardy's not the star of that movie. So he could have handled this better, and he hasn't, I assume because he's just like whatever and now he's doing this weird show with his like that his dad wrote some African colonial something. I don't fucking it's, know. It's but
0: unfortunate. Like, it's really unfortunate. Right.
1: Like, literally, he's made Mad Max masterpiece, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy masterpiece, and um, this little movie, Locke, where it's, like, literally just him in a car for an hour
0: and a half. But, like Really good. And- Another accent situation. Uh,
1: yes. Um, so that's three good movies in, like, six years, which many people have done worse. You know, get your shit together, right? And stop doing the voices. That's my that's my sophisticated advice to Tom Hardy. Even worse is Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Who oh, like boy. what the fuck is going on? He's made one good movie since my forget it's he made fifty fifty since this movie, which is a like the cancer it's comedy. A, did, yeah,
0: it's a low budget cancer comedy. Which
1: I really enjoyed a lot. Not perfect, but I think very
0: solid. Has there been anything? Oh, Looper. I like Looper a lot. Looper's good. Um I mean he also takes on because he's he's into producing. He directed a film himself, which I'm definitely not going to be watching, which I can't remember. Like I think he plays a porn star in it maybe.
1: No, he plays a man who's addicted to porn. Okay.
0: Okay. He plays a porn addict, which I like sank so... without trace, that movie. Yeah.
1: it's was like I'm not watching this. Like... And he
0: has his production company. I think also like he has a lot of side projects that he finds interesting and he doesn't necessarily have like the best taste.
1: Yes, but what's interesting is that for a while I'm looking I'm looking up his IMDb. We're going deep on this because this <laughs> is actually quite painful to me because for I mean he's a very embarrassing person just like in general, lovably like,
0: lovably, embarrassing. lovably
1: embarrassing. For like a couple of years before Inception, and then sort of like through that year, he was one of my favorite actors, and he'd done a couple of really good things. Um, and he was one of, like Hollywood was really into him. He was one of the like rising stars. Obviously, he'd been a child star and had been around for a long time, but he kind of like broken into doing adult stuff and was really great. He also did Lincoln after this, but he was in that for like five seconds and was bad in it. So that does not count.
0: Yeah. In my but just, just to kind of like um, cut this short, basically the films that he's had out in the last year or so are, he did the, the fictionalized adaptation of the documentary Man on Wire, which is about a French um, kind of prankster slash athlete who balanced exactly. on a wire. Yeah. yeah, most so, people know, don't who, they? Who I is. don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was like a very good documentary, and then not a good film where he had to put on a French accent. And like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt can speak French, so they, they could have yeah. just made it in French, or they could have just kept his American accent. But they were like, we're gonna have it in English with a French accent, which is always a bad idea. And then the next film he's got coming out is the Snowden biopic, which <laughs> I like. I just laughed all the way through that trailer, full on loud belly yes. laughs So
1: bad. It looks so bad. Like, I don't... (laughs) And he's doing a weird voice. Like, he's caught it from Tom... Parties. He's doing
0: like a relatively respectable impression of Edward Snowden's voice, which is not necessary because most people don't know what Edward Snowden sounds like and it's not an important part of his persona, but they've not dyed his hair. So Joseph Grinnell does not look anything like Edward Snowden at all visually, but he sounds somewhat like him, but just different enough for it to hit that uncanny valley spot. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> and like, just to briefly, like, I do want to briefly list like a couple of the movies he made sort of like in between hitting adulthood and inception and then, like, weirdly, like, vanishing, which was, like, Mysterious Skin, which was his first sort of breakout amazing film, Brick, Stop Loss, which he's very good in, and then 500 Days of Summer, which was a movie with some problems, it was a huge hit for a movie
0: of that scale. That's, like, a really and, consistent list.
1: Yeah, he made some other stuff that wasn't good, but, like, those, that's, like, a bunch of really good stuff, and now he's doing, like, Snowden.
0: Like, what are you doing? I I mean, the Snowden thing is, like, Oliver Stone is a very well-respected director. And Edward Snowden is a very popular figure. And the ethics behind making a movie about Edward Snowden to familiarize him with the American public and try and humanize the story, completely, like, agree with all of that. I see why you would make that film. Unfortunately, it does not look like it's ending up good. But I can see the thought process behind that.
1: Right. But the combination of doing that and the Philip Petit movie consecutively, but, like, The reason we were talking about this so much is that like watching Inception, he's playing a character who really is on the page, I'm sure, not much. And he's so great. (laughs) He seems like a human. He really seems like a person. He's really charismatic. He's so much fun to watch. I think one of the gifts he has as an actor is that he is really good at using his
0: whole body in his... Performances. He definitely has a very dance performance in Inception.
1: Yeah, and that's so important in this when he has not that much dialogue and therefore has to really create this character with his physical acting. And we can talk now about the costumes, and that obviously has a huge amount to do with it too. Like the costuming is immaculate across the board, and I think. With Arthur and Eames, kind of like gives the most to them in terms of like adding to their characters, um, but like his his whole sort of physical presence really conveys so much about who he is, um, and it depresses me that he's now doing like a Snowden biopic. Like, please make a good movie again. Why? But I will let you now discuss your favorite, your favorite <laughs> thing in the history of cinema the costumes and inception
0: yeah (laughs) one day one day i'll land a book deal and i'll just do a whole book about the inception (laughs) that that or hannibal which is slightly more realistic because i've got three seasons to work with um generally in terms of public recognition and prize winning the films that get a lot of attention for costumes are either historical dramas or fantasies or something like sex in the city where there's a very ostentatious use of fashionable clothes right so it's stuff where it's really noticeable And Inception is basically the opposite of that. Like It's set in the present day and almost all of the main characters exclusively wear business attire. So you have everyone just wearing suits and the colour palette is also quite subdued, right? They use these kind of beige, grey, black and white colours for a lot of it. It's quite warm. And then you've got Mal who is wearing like sexy evening wear and she's purple because she's like an evil sexy witch but they do so much with those costumes if you even just look up screenshots from this film there's so much going on in the subtext of the costumes to add to their characters which is so necessary in this movie because they don't all have really strongly noticeable character traits and they also don't have emotional arcs for the most part Arthur is a really good example because you get so much out of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance when he's interacting with Ariadne, Eames, and Cobb, because he has very different relationships with all of them, and all of that emotional work is going on just in his body language and facial expressions and tone, rather than anything in the dialogue, because basically they're talking about work all the time. When you look up each of the individual characters, Eames is kind of – that character was originally written to be older, like he was meant to be older than Cobb, and he was this early James Bond era expat Englishman who was sort of lounging around in slightly wrinkled mid-20th century fashion which is like basically what you have and you have Tom Hardy wearing these clothes which aren't necessarily that flattering but make him look really cool and quite dated and kind of sleazy you've got sleazy Tom Hardy in this movie very good (laughs) and then you've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt in these immaculate suits but he is very trendy so like he's fashionable and cool and well-organized he looks like a fashion plate. Like he looks like someone who reads GQ a lot. He looks like he has a Pinterest account. <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt is someone who knows how to use a very big gun and also has a Pinterest account full of shoes, oh my which God, is why <laughs> why we ended up writing so much fanfiction about him. Ariadne has this chic studenty thing going on. I think basically Ellen Page is one of the few actresses who actually is allowed to do this, where you wear clothes that are not intentionally made to make you look sexy. Yeah. Because, like, she managed to luck out and not have to be forced to wear, like, a push-up bra in every movie. Um, (laughs) And, like, Cobb is great because he's just wearing, like, the blandest clothes. He just looks like a dad. When you see, like, at the beginning when they're in the scene with Saito, you have Saito who's wearing a Japanese shirt underneath his tuxedo, and then you've got Arthur who's wearing the sharpest, most modern suit, and then you've got Cobb who's wearing, like, a black tie And just looks like he's kind of gone to like the office party. So like, there's a lot (laughs) going on with these costumes. They're really well done. Basically, if you ever rewatch this film, you should focus a lot on the costumes because you get a lot of it.
1: I really do think like that, and the combination of performance, like this is kind of the reason why I was agonizing over Tom Hardy is like he's so charming, right? And he has not basically played charming people since I guess one of the characters in Legend is meant to be quite charming, Um, but. He seems very determined to play ugly, unpleasant people. And I was like, you're, he could be such a like movie star. And I don't think he wants to be, but like he should just do it. There's so much
0: potential there. and um, I've never seen The Thomas Crown Affair, but there's a remake of The Thomas Crown Affair coming out starring Michael B. Jordan. Is there yeah. a secondary role they could cast Tom Hardy in? Watch
1: <laughs> please. Please. But there is, like, the sort of sleaziness that you were describing is so true. And the costumes and the performance
0: just complement each other so well. Like, like, slightly sexually ambiguous. Yes. Like, extremely intelligent and intellectual, but also kind of gross.
1: Yes. But in a way that's just, like, great. It's like, great. Like, sign me up. <laughs> um, and I think I was emailing you that I was, like, the sexual ambiguity, I think, is is. Pretty clearly there, I'm sure not intentionally on the part of Christopher Nolan, but like at one point he uh, Eames turns into a woman to mess with Fisher, and then is flirting with Saito also, and is clearly like getting off on it, and you're like, hmm, that's interesting. I emailed you too, and I was like, clearly. Clearly, Arthur is like not straight in this movie, and you were like, "You think everyone's gay?" And I was like, "Uh, watch it again, please." The combination of just his mannerisms and what he's wearing, I was like, "No, you're." I mean, I disagree. I
0: I think the only thing you can divine about people's sexuality is what they're interested in, rather than anything. Obviously, there are stereotypes which are to a certain degree accurate, but in this film, we can't tell anything about his sexuality, apart from that at one point he like sneaks a kiss from Ariadne.
1: Which, oh, stupid. stupid which is stupid. It's a stupid um,
0: movie moment, but you can interpret it either way. I don't think there's like a flashing light going on anywhere.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, obviously it's not made explicit, but I think there's a very compelling case to be made there, which is not often true, and that also is largely down to the clothes, which normally, when they're just dressing them up in suits, is not true because they're normally quite boring, which makes it really enjoyable to watch since so much of it is is so stupid. Um, We haven't really talked about just, like, the logic of the movie, and I don't think we have time to go too deep into it, but, like, there are so many things that just don't make any sense. I think we were saying before we started that, like, I think I... Understand less of what's happening in this film now than I did when I watched it initially. I think the more you think about it, the less logical.
0: If you pay attention while you're watching it, the story makes sense. It makes yeah. sense on an emotional level and it works. Yeah. And that's all that actually matters. There's definitely like diagrams out there that you can use to find it more easy to follow the internal logic of the way the dreams work. And that's fine as well. But I think once people get into the point of of really trying to pull apart the world building and stuff. Like, the more you look into it, the less it makes sense. And there's really no point in trying to look into that, because although Christopher Nolan is incredibly clever, and he put a lot of thought into this movie, obviously a lot of it is complete nonsense. There's a scene towards the end, once they're in the final level of the dream, where I just started laughing, because they spend so much time explaining the way the different dream levels work in the heist, because they're so heavily sedated. If they die, they drop into the limbo dimension. And then... Right at the end, Saito dies eventually, and so he's dropped down into limbo. And then Fisher, who is the person who's holding the dream in his head, gets shot and dies. So he must have dropped into limbo. And then Ariadne has this little exposition point where she like explains how she and Cobb are going to go down into limbo intentionally and like bring Fisher back. And then rescue Saito and then they're all gonna like ride the automated timed kick back up through the layers of the dream and then wake up and i'm like nothing you just said makes sense (laughs) i know you just told me what the plan is right but this doesn't make sense in the context i feel like maybe someone will message us explaining what that means but I really strongly suspect it won't make sense because it relies on Fisher being revived from a bullet wound with a defibrillator. And then once they're in limbo, Saito has been there for an infinite length of time and is an old man who doesn't remember his previous life, which is what they said would happen when you're in limbo. But when Fisher drops down there, that's not what happens to him. But like Ariadne and Cobb, because they're intentionally going into limbo, they retain their youth and memories and they're fine. There's not that much difference in the timescale of them being in limbo. So like it definitely, there's not any internal consistency but it doesn't really matter right it doesn't matter to like the entertainment value of the movie
1: well the one thing that really stuck out to me as being like funny is that they're they're putting them into this especially strong sedative right so they can go three levels down as opposed to just two but the special thing that yusuf has done to the compound is preserve something with the like inner ear thing right so that if you fall down or whatever that then you're like jerked out of the dream, which is how the van goes off the bridge, and that's how they wake up. But yeah, like but the, the van... van is
0: real, <laughs> well, right?
1: Right. But like the van like falls over, like they turn over, which is how the big thing with the hotel, yeah. the gravity hotel, right? And I was like, why wouldn't they all have just woken up? Because if the whole thing is that if you get jerked out, they would all have woken up. But it's fine. It doesn't. like, Whatever. It's all. It sure, sure, like. <laughs> You have to just accept it and keep and keep going. It led to that great sequence in the hotel, so it's fine. <laughs> oh my god, what a film. There's just so, so much. And now we have our broom noise that is in every trailer <laughs> for every action movie. The yeah. music at is great, and it was the first time when there was that sound. Yeah, like, it
0: has so much to thank for. What was,
1: I mean, I don't want to dwell too much on this because we're wrapping up, and also this is like the thing we keep returning to, and we'll return to a little bit for the next two weeks before breaking out into something a little bit different is the like big studio machinations behind this, right? So I watched this just a few days after having seen Civil War, and it was like totally fascinating to me because it was just such an example of a filmmaker just being allowed to do whatever he wanted with a huge budget. As we said at the beginning, basically because Warner Brothers was like, sure, we'll let you do this if you come back for the last one. And I think that's um, kind of
0: also part of the reason why Jupiter Ascending happened. Because they're so keen for the Wachowskis to make a DC Comics movie, and it's not going to happen.
1: Well, especially after that movie. Oh yeah, like, obviously that movie
0: was a flop. Um, yeah,
1: but yeah, but... uh there's a great um, Mark Harris article from February of 2011, which I remembered just before we started recording this. And it was so funny because like, I think that was probably the first thing of his I'd read. And now I read all of his stuff. But he had another article about sort of like how studios were destroying Hollywood around a year and a half ago. And it's like the same thing as this as this article. Um, so he's just been like living in this miserable miserable reality of, like, explaining how Hollywood is going on in the tubes for, like, five years. But the point that he was making was that the Warner Brothers basically was like, fine, we'll let you do this original movie. And, as I said, probably should have edited him a little more. But uh, Inception made almost three quarters of a billion dollars worldwide. And the studio's response to that was basically like, well whatever like like they tried to pretend that it hadn't happened or that it was this total anomaly and like people don't like original movies and it was only a year after it was like six months after avatar yeah i mean it
0: came out in 2010 and avatar came out in the winter of 2009 2010
1: so obviously some things like jupiter ascending for instance come out and make no money
0: (laughs) yeah and but but like part of the reason why jupiter ascending made no money is because it was poorly marketed
1: Right, and weird as shit. I mean, like, I like that movie a lot, but, like, it's quite odd.
0: But But so is fucking Avatar.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is true, but we can't really explain that one. There is this idea, I think, that original movies can't be successful, right? And that only something like Civil War, which is really just like a chapter in the. TV show that is the MCU can make money. And obviously those are very reliable films, right? Like they know there's no real risk involved. They know they're going to make a ton of money. But even though I have a lot of problems with this movie, I'm very fond of it sort of emotionally, but I think artistically it has a lot of issues. Like it's so much more interesting. (laughs) I would so much rather than be making these movies. Like there's nothing wrong with superhero movies. I enjoy them and I'm glad they exist, but I would like there to be more variety and the move away from doing anything like this ever is really frustrating because this movie was so successful and made so much money and people still talk about it and actually yeah, ironically... i mean it's it's
0: such a clear case of the inaccurate assumption of there being a link between conservatism and reliability because the idea that you can only do things that are part of a franchise or just repeating Things of the past, you know, everyone, everyone fucking is sick of remakes. Like This is a conversation everyone who likes films has. Um, the idea that original films don't make money is the same logic as you can't have a diverse cast and you can't have people of yes. colour in lead roles. Because like as soon as you start doing that, it becomes abundantly clear that people are hungry to see new things and they're hungry to see like a diversity of casting and a diversity of stories. But because people are so attached to the idea of conservatism in the filmmaking industry being a good idea and that being like the business focused plan they're like oh it's too risky and it's like it's, it's a slight risk but you know it pays off
1: yeah again we hate hollywood and yet, <laughs> yeah and we have
0: yet. a movie podcast <laughs> so next
1: week we will be taking a break in fact and then the week after that we will be coming back to discuss one of our favorite franchises x-men <laughs>
0: yes we have x-men apocalypse starring oscar isaac in a very important role as apocalypse (laughs)
1: or a smurf one of those two things we can't be sure oh my god yeah diving back into the superhero machine i'm a little worried about this movie it seems potentially like it's going to be terrible but as we have discussed at great length not on this podcast, is it possible for an X-Men movie
0: to be bad? That's we the thing, know. right? Because both of us yeah. are so, so into the Marvel Studios franchise. And with the X-Men movies, at least when it comes to like Morgan and I, <laughs> we will enjoy <laughs> that garbage. Like None of those films really make sense. Some of them are genuinely good. Some of them are extremely bad. But I am totally there for people yelling at each other, wearing capes. It's amazing.
1: Yeah. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. And I embrace that. So we're looking forward to that. And uh, in the meantime, you can check out our backlog if you haven't been listening to that. So thank you for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a rating and or review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. You can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, and at Tumblr on overinvestedpodcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.